Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen concludes her two-part conversation with author and journalist Mark Hagland about his recently published book, Extraordinary Journey, The Lifelong Path of the Transracial Adoptee. Hello, this is Karen Doyle Buckwalter, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I am joining you here from Chaddock and eager to introduce my guest for today, who is Mark Hegland. So let me tell you a little bit about Mark. He is an adult transracial and international adoptee. He was born in South Korea in 1960 and adopted as an infant by white parents of Norwegian and German descent. And he grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He's a professional business journalist and lives in Chicago. He has participated in in in-person and online forums around transracial adoption for over 20 years and has spoken publicly about issues around transracial adoption in numerous settings, both in the United States and Europe. He is also involved in co-moderating Facebook groups around transracial adoption now in multiple languages. This spring, and this is what I'm really, really excited about, he published his book, Extraordinary Journey, The Lifelong Path of the Transracial Adoptee. Previously, he was a contributing author to several other books published by teams of adult transracial adoptees, including Outsiders Within, Parenting as Adoptees, and the Unknown Culture Club. He's also written numerous articles on subjects related to transracial adoption. And what I want to add on a personal note is Mark has been an amazing mentor to me about the importance of race and multiple different identities that people have and how that relates to attachment and feeling safe and connected. He's had a lot of patience in educating me about racial issues that are important to understand in transracial adoption, and I'm really greatly indebted to him. If we have any parents listening today, I would really recommend you check out the group that he helped to um, found transracial adoption perspectives, which is a Facebook group, particularly geared towards parents who have adopted transracially. So I know you're going to really enjoy this interview, even if you're not involved specifically in adoption. Mark is so articulate and inspiring that I know you will enjoy this interview regardless of your involvement with that particular issue. So he will be coming right up. Hey, Mark, it's so good to continue this conversation with you. Thank you for continuing the discussion. 
Wonderful to be back. Yes. So, you know, as I'm thinking about what we were talking about at the end of our part one of this is racial mirroring. And honestly, Mm -hmm. this is a term that is going to be new to some people. It yeah. was, it, again, when I first got exposed to to uh, Melanie Chung Sherman mm-hmm. and, and you and others who have educated about, educated me about this, that was a new term. And I know to folks in your community, it's like, what? I mean, that that's a new term, you know? Yeah. But I'm just really being honest here that I think before we move on, it might be good for you to just kind of define that. I mean, I know yeah. you have something written about in the book, but if you want to just define it as we wrap up what that is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let me explain what the need is. Yes. So the need, uh, so what young children of color need is to daily see people, both adults and children, people of all ages, of their own race specifically, and also of other non-white races. And they need to see them daily and they need to be in some way interacting with them as well um, in order to grow up with a healthy, physical self-image and a healthy mental self-concept, both uh, psychologically and socioculturally. That's what racial mirroring is. I'll tell you what it isn't. I have had white adoptive parents say, well, you know, I'll just take an example. Well, my child is black and in her, grade school of 600 children, there's one other black child. (laughs) And and she's adopted too. So she also has white parents. And 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 you're you're chuckling now, but I know that when someone is saying this to you, they're being very serious. Oh yeah, they, they, I think it speaks to what there's, there's an internal dialogue for white people that is different for, for people of color. White people will see a room, let's say you go, you're, you're at some kind of gathering in a hotel ballroom and there are 500 people in the room and the average white people, if they see two black people, two Asians and one potentially Latinx person will say, they'll say, wow, this is such a diverse group. <laughs> the people of color won't see that. They'll, and, and it's not it's not so much specific percentages or numbers. We get that question a lot in the main tapped group too. Like my child is and this Pat, race. We should say that's the, uh, a large group right. where uh, right. stands for uh, transracial. Well, what is adoption. It, right? Yes, transracial adoption perspectives. Yes. Yeah, I was like, okay, yes, tap. So used to just yeah. saying tap. That's mm-hmm. right. So the thing is, people, sometimes parents will ask, like, we've had this question many times, you know, I'm thinking of moving into more diversity. So I'm like, good, yay. Yes. And then they'll say, so I'm looking at school districts and I'm looking at percentages by race, right? Like school district A has 40% black, 20% Latino, you know, 
10% Asian or whatever, and school district B is blah, blah, blah. And one of the things I constantly try to emphasize, don't go by percentages. That's not what it's about. It's about if you were to walk into the hallway in a grade school, junior high or high school, how does it feel? Does it feel like there are enough POC? Are there teachers of color? Are there administrators of color? What is the neighborhood like when you walk through the neighborhood? Uh, is it all white people? Uh, is it all black people, right? Is it, what? what is the vibe like? And so mirrors are such nuanced things in a certain way because um, there are different ways to be mirrored. But what I will say is most white transracially adopted parents have already adopted before they even think about this. And so then they're challenged and they're like, oh, well, we can't move and blah, blah, blah. And that I would ask those parents to think very, very reflectively about what their child's experience will be like growing up. And I, I try very, very, very hard never to tragedize my own narrative. You know, I've, I'm fine. I'm doing great. I'm having a wonderful life. But I want parents to know that it was absolutely devastating for me to grow up in overwhelming whiteness. And that's, that relates to my very strong sense of mission in these groups. Because so many white parents, even now in 2021, don't understand even some of these basic concepts. Yes. And I, again, going back to a clinician who was working um, in this area, I didn't understand it either. I th Here's what I thought. I thought, oh, well, they talk about, you know, being exposed to diversity, that, 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 which is different than racial mirrors. Yeah. Okay. So, so like, I'm not understanding the nuances of this. This is just how I thought. So, but I mean, these parents have jobs here and they have family here yeah. and, you know, they're, they're in the rural Midwest or wherever, like, yeah. surely it can't be a, I'm going to be honest, Mark, this is, I don't, I'm not proud of this, but inside I'm thinking, surely it can't be a big enough deal that they should like mm -hmm. uproot themselves from their job and their extended family. Surely we could just, you know, go to some culture camps and yeah. go to a church where there's some <laughs> people. Yeah. Of color. I mean, I, this is how I thought, like, yeah. I, because it well, that's all, how the vast majority of white people think. Yeah, it, it all comes from, I think, for me, my white perspective of not understanding the magnitude of the problem. Yeah. So yeah. that if we don't do that, well, there there could the ideal would be a diverse area with lots of you know racial right. mirrors but you know it's not a deal breaker if you don't i mean you know it's right. in a perfect world that's what you would have but right. it's not going to make really huge differences and right. then i meet you and i meet melanie <laughs> and you start to talk to me about what it felt like and the, yeah. the long far-reaching impact of how you view yourselves and yeah. your image of yourself and i'm like oh my gosh yeah. i cannot believe how much i was underestimating right 
this. Could I, could I share personally to yes. help in mind? So, and again, I want to frame this. I, when I share in the groups, I really, 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 like really times 130, don't want pity or sorrow or that's, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm purely looking to educate because I'm fine and whatever issues I have, I'm working on myself. But I am 60 years old now and there's a part of me that still does not accept my physical appearance. Um, I do, you know, on a practical level, but I still have internal psychological issues around it. So think about how long I've been living, right? And now I do live in diversity. I live in great diversity. I love where I live. It's perfect for me in all ways. But as you know, as a clinician, if there's a deficit, a serious deficit in a child, a young child's life, that reverberates through their lifetime, you know, even if they are in a different situation later on. And so I just want parents to understand it's very profound, it's very deep. And I think often about the fact that wouldn't it be great to not still a little bit struggle with that, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It would be great to just have that completely put away. A part of me on a practical level, it is put away, but it I'll never completely get completely fixed, if that makes sense. Yes, and I think um, one of the things I'm thinking about when you're sharing that is, um, you know, someone could say, well, lots of people have physical image issues, I mean, right. body image issues with women, right. and but this is different. Yeah, yeah. I mean, every. in fact, it's funny that you mentioned that because whenever I do share personally about that, which is not often outside transracial adoption related groups, I don't like, you know, right. my first coffee with a friend, I don't say, did you know I have a terrible self-image issue, yes. physical self-image. But when I do share, that's the first reaction. Oh, I never liked my nose, right? Well, yes, all human beings have that. This yes. is a completely different level of that. And and I think because there is so much racism that's hidden from white people in our society, they don't realize just how othering it is to be the only whatever, you know? And um, again, this is for education for parents. You know, I'm, I'm fine in my life, I'm having a great life, but I want them to understand that this is deep, this is profound, and it reverberates throughout one's life. And then it also impacts the, the life partner one chooses, it impacts how one raises one's children when one is an adult transracial adoptee and a parent. It's really, there's, there's a lot of ripples in that mm -hmm. pond. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you know, one one of the other concepts that I'm thinking of that relates to this, so, so many of these are interrelated too, aren't they? Yeah. But this idea for your experience specifically of not being white, but not being Korean enough yeah. either. Yeah, and yeah, I, yeah, so I think this is this other sort of no man's land or no woman's land, whatever we want to call it, right. that is not 
deeply understood until you start, I don't know, frankly, I just don't feel like you can understand this unless you have like lots of dialogue with adoptive right. persons, honestly. Right. I mean, cause right. you it's and I, we have talked for hours and hours. We've had like Facebook messaging right. Right. about right. topics, you know? So like, I would like to hear yeah. about that a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's a huge thing. Thank you for asking Karen. And one concept that I did introduce in the book, uh, I did coin the term, the dialectic of authenticity. So, yes. Yeah, so that was me. Yes. <laughs> so what does that mean? So we adoptees do live in this strange uh, in-between world, right? And um, when we encounter people from our birth culture, whether we're domestic or international, we are scrutinized. We are often othered, as we say. We use the word othered because they know that we're not, we didn't grow up in our birth culture. And so, and we, we get it most intensely from people from our own culture, right? So, um, so when I have, I've been to South Korea three times as an adult, it, intense othering. Um, I don't speak Korean. I mean, I have a few phrases that I was able to use, but you know, how far do you get with, hello, nice to meet you, my name is. And then and that's it, right? <laughs> it is three o'clock. Like I can say like seven things. Yes. Um, and so there's this intense dialectic of authenticity where the quote unquote real Korean, right? The Korean living in South Korea, the Korean living in the United States uh, scrutinizes me and decides I'm not really one of them. Yeah. And for many adult transracial adoptees, it's absolutely shattering. And for many adoptees who go into birth culture is shattering. I'll share two stories briefly. One, um, for several years, I advised a white mom who I met in our TAP group. Her daughter, she she and her husband are white. They raised their two black children um, in a medium, small-sized town in the upper Midwest. Their daughter, who is very beautiful, uh, in fact, she does some modeling, um, she she moved to a larger city with a much larger black population when she was an early adult, a young adult, about 20. And she was absolutely devastated because people knew that she was not culturally black, or as I like to say, they could smell it on her. Um, and it took her several years to finally um, uh, acclimatize herself to actual lived black culture so that people weren't constantly saying what what's with you right like what what are you what is that and um and then those of us who are international adoptees uh i two of my three visits to south korea involved what we call motherland tours and one of our uh, members of our tour was a 25 year old gal who um she really had no idea what she was getting into and she, her mother bought her this trip for the two of them to go to South Korea together. And she was absolutely devastated because she did not realize that young women her age in South Korea are expected to be tiny, like really tiny, like very skinny, very, you know, the, the, the dress sizes in South Korea until recently only went up to four. That was the largest. And she was, um, you know, just slightly chubby. You wouldn't even notice her in the United States. Like you, you wouldn't even think that thought. Mm -hmm. But in South Korea, for a young woman her age, she was overweight. 
by South Korean standards. And she constantly got stared at. Uh, you know, like bad stares, because Asians stare in a really bad way. They're very open. And um, it was devastating to her. Absolutely. She kind of melted down. There's a whole story about that. So when we go into our birth cultures, um, we are othered very significantly. And then that adds to all the other kind of traumatic experiences we've had, because we're not accepted by the people who look like us. And I know many international adoptees who have it in their minds. If I go back to my birth country, I'll fit in, quote unquote, fit in. You never fit in. You're the most foreign person on earth and they know it. And so we all have to find some inner peace and some space where we as individuals can feel comfortable with who we are. And that's a part of the lifelong journey too, because it doesn't happen overnight, right? As soon as we start to move into spaces of color, if we were raised in total whiteness, we are culturally white. And so when we meet people from our birth culture, they're like, what are you, (laughs) right? They're like, you're you're what? And, And so we get, you know, we grew up with othering in, white culture, and then we get into cultures of color, including our birth culture, and we're constantly othered. So there are a lot of pieces, moving parts to this. Well, it might be self-explanatory from context or whatever, but maybe share with listeners what you mean by othering. Yeah, othering just means um, uh, making another person feel uncomfortable and different, right? Yes. Yes. Like, so, so, so you have glasses. If I were, I mean, this is kind of a silly example because half the adults have glasses. But if I, you know, we ha- if we were introduced by a friend, right, and and we were having coffee at a cafe, and I, I continually said to to you, oh, Karen, well, how do you feel as a person who wears glasses? That must be such a a weird experience to wear glasses, right? That's othering, right? Yes. And. My gosh, we transracial adoptees get it all our lives. We get it from white people, and then we get it from people of color, especially people in our birth cultures. We're we're made to feel different in a bad way. Yes, and I think, again, there's always this white centering tendency. It was like, well, yeah, I felt like that sometimes, but we're talking the frequency of that. And the intensity. And the intensity. Yeah. And the duration you know, across your, the duration. Like from the time you show up in this right. family to, you know. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, it's true. And, and many white people have no idea about the volume of microaggressions that people of color experience. Yes. Um, I had a colleague who's a black woman and she has um, a, a very tight cropped Afro and this was before she met me, but she was telling me this story. She was managing a conference. She was at the registration table and it was a medical conference. This was like medical specialists. And some random white woman comes up to her and runs her hands all the way through her hair and says, oh, I wondered what that would feel like. And my friend, of course, didn't want to lose her job. She was like, I wanted to slap that one, you know, and she just said, excuse me, but that's not appropriate. Right. And internally, she was just like, oh, my gosh, she was like in a rage. She has had that happen more than once. I mean, that was the only time at a professional conference. This was a professional medical conference. Yeah. But we experience a lot of weird microaggressions. And as adoptees, we 
sometimes we don't even know how to process them, right? We can't go home to our Black, Asian, Latinx, Native parents because we don't have them, right? Yeah. So we're, we, we're, we're kind of like, we, we tend to internalize them, in fact. And that was a part of what happened to me. You know, I internalized racism to myself. And it was, as, as I say in the book, I, growing up in the environment in which I grew up, not being white was like a capital crime somehow, but I couldn't fix it. I couldn't be white. And so I just grew up with an intense feeling of shame and differentness that, you know, I, I was like irretrievably broken by not being white. Now, if I had had significant racial mirrors, I wouldn't have had that experience at all. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, as we talk about this, we're, we're just touching the tip of the iceberg of a couple topics in this book. And um, I find myself thinking, oh, somebody's going to think, well, what are you saying? Transracial adoption is bad. I mean, I think that we don't want to be many of us don't want to be reminded how hard this can be because because we have this agenda of doing this yeah well so there's the there i I have to explain about rainbows and unicorns (laughs) so right yeah we we just have to go there so you know when when white white parents adopt children of color a lot of times there's implicit saviorism they're saving a child from something to something. And that gets very complex. There are a lot of elements of serialism. But they also come into it because our society has a narrative that adoption is always good, it's always wonderful. Or as I say, it's like a um, perpetually dancing through a field of daisies on a summer afternoon. And that's just not the lived experience of adoptees. So in our groups, we talk about the rainbows and unicorns view of adoption, which is that it's always wonderful, it's always sweet. And, and so often that view is held by parents who have just adopted their, their children, which is understandable, right? Yes. You've, adopt, you've adopted an eight month child, you're in love with your child, which you should be in love with your child. And you just kind of, you know, you're still at the stage of um, putting them into cute onesies and, and, you know, decorating the walls with cute wallpaper with little, you know, elephants on it or whatever. Um, the reality is that we, have so many complex experiences. Um, you know, I I just had a conversation yesterday, and I, obviously I'm going to keep this person's identity private. It was a, I can say she's an Asian adoptee adopted to a European country. And then on top of everything else, unfortunately, her She's a, she's a clinical psychologist and she has diagnosed her mother as having borderline personality disorder. So there was that too, like intense mental illness in the family. But she grew up in an area that's super white, even whiter than where I grew up. And it's a beautiful tourist city. If I mention the name and I've been there, you'd be like, wow, like it's a, a gorgeous city. 
but she grew up intensely isolated. And she had a sister, by the way, adopted from the same country. And they didn't even get along. So there was that layer too, right? Yeah. Like when you say, well, we have two Chinese daughters or whatever, or two Ethiopian children. Well, they might not even like each other. So they are right. that old, right? right? Just like siblings in any family. So I talked to her and she uh, is actually moving to the United States. She married an American and she's moving to the United States. She can't wait to leave the country that she's grown up in. Uh, for her, it's far too white. And it, in her experience, it's too racist. Like people don't get being POC. Um, and so we, we have these, I mean, our lifelong journeys have a lot of layers, right? Um, here's someone who, as I mentioned, she's a clinical psychologist and she looks at her experience and she says a lot of things are pretty messed up. So we have this very broad range of experiences, but even those, I, I know I mentioned this in the book, even though I had very loving and good parents, I still experienced most of what the, the adoptees who didn't have loving, good, good parents experienced. They just had another layer on top of that. So I want white adoptive parents above all to take off those rose-colored glasses. You know, I don't want them to tragedize their children's narratives. A lot of times when white parents suddenly have that revelation and they discover that racism is real, um, very often it will be because their child was racially aggressed in kindergarten or grade school or whatever, you know, the, the, this is such a common thing. It's reported to us all the time in our groups, you know, you know, I have a black daughter, she's five years old. She, she had her first day of, of uh, preschool and an, another little girl said, you know, your color is the skin, your skin is the color of poop. And the, the daughter of course is devastated and, you know, and then I tell my uh, traffic safety story, which involves how you need to explain race and racism to your child before they experience explicit microaggressions. But anyway, um, I need for parents to realize, um, and, and clinicians too, if you're working with a family created through adoption, that this is a very complex layered lifelong journey. And it's lifelong, a lifelong journey for the parents too. Mm -hmm. um, there's good, there's bad, there's everything. But please uh, get out of the rainbows and unicorns, rose-colored rose -colored glasses view of adoption because the lived experience of adoptees is totally different. Yeah. And, I, and I want to emphasize, I've had a wonderful life and I had wonderful parents uh, and many, 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 many wonderful things have happened. And yet, I was devastated by the experience of racism and racial isolation. Both yes. can be true. Yes, yes, yes. It's important to understand. And that gets into one of your other topics of the book that we don't have time to talk about, which is binary <laughs> thinking and yes. understanding it's not an either or situation yes. here. So, yes. well, Mark, this book is so wonderful. I, as I read it, I could hear you, your voice in my mind mm -hmm. and different things that I've learned in TAP and from other I would say mainly from other um, adult adoptees who mm -hmm. I think I've only in the last, you know, seven years or so really been interacting a lot with yeah. with adult adoptees. So 
Uh, yeah. So just we're, we're interesting, aren't we? <laughs> well, there's just so much to learn. You know, yeah. I, I, as I read the book, I was like, oh yeah, 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 that, that part. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. I, that's, I mean, it's really, it's, it's hard to, uh, internalize just learning it, let alone living it, Mark. I mean, yeah, there's just yeah. so much, like you said. And, uh, so this book is so important. I really, would love every person listening to buy it. Um, I think adoption agencies, you know, it should be part of the curriculum before adopting. There's so much in it, even um, if it's not an international adoption. I mean, there's just so much in this book. So I appreciate that, Karen. I I want to leave our audience with the word hope. Yes. What I absolutely do not want Yes. Yes. For someone to listen to this podcast and say, oh, my gosh, I'm just going to jump off the top of my building. (laughs) Right. That's not the response. The response is, um, you know, if you're a parent, the response is, let's get to work now. Let's find out about your child's culture. Let's learn about systemic racism. Let's learn about uh, trauma and adoption. It's just something that you have to do. Yes. And, And I would say to the clinicians in the group, um, it can be very easy to kind of try to coast on and rely on superficial understandings of these dynamics. Mm-hmm. But to the extent that you can dig deeper, it will help anyone that you're uh, therapizing, anyone that you're working with, because they need, they need you to be able to, uh, to marry, to ally your wisdom as a clinician with any insults you can uh, insights you can have around this subject. Yes. If you can, if you can combine the two, it's very powerful. Yes. You know, to be able to see the connections. This is why many um, transracial adult transracial adoptees are seeking therapists who are fellow transracial adoptees. Mm -hmm. They're an incredible shortage. Like the small number who are out there are besieged. They could, you know, they they could be doing office hours at midnight and and, or even therapists of color, there's a shortage. So a huge shortage. Exactly. So yeah. So so just I think that anyone who I would hope that anyone who walks away having finished this book, and I hope hope that they're interested enough to finish it, that they'll say, wow, that was really worthwhile. I'm going to apply it rather than I'm going to jump off the top of a building. Right, right. Yes, yes. Important that you're trying to give knowledge, um, not to shame anyone or tragedize the situation, but to give awareness and education and knowledge of what could make things better for your adopted child. Right, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Mark. Thank you. It's been it's been a delight, Karen, and I so appreciate our having these dialogues. Very yes. much appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye for now. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.